0: So Jesus told the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. Weeds among the wheat and then departed. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, you didn't sow good seed You you sowed uh, good seed in your field. You didn't sow weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, said Jesus. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, no, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat. Let both grow together until the time of harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. It's either burning or the barn. The disciples were a bit confused about this, so when they entered the house they asked Jesus, explain to us this parable about the weeds. And he said, the one who sowed is me. ...the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one... ...and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age... ...and the harvesters are the angels. As weeds are pulled up and burned in fire... ...so it will be at the end of the age... The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all that do evil. And they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God forever. And as Jesus often did, he ended his teaching with whoever has ears to hear. Don't miss this one. That seems like a wonderful teaching to bring us back to our study in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. For when we open up, you'll recall the very first verse of this chapter, Paul speaking to Timothy said mark this my young friend terrible times are coming and he described the character of the terrible times by using the word love look at the first few verses people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money they'll be without verse 3 natural love or affection to other human beings even their own family they will not be lovers of the good And verse 4 summarizes it all. They will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Oh, they will be lovers, to be sure, but of themselves and not of God. But here's the kicker. Verse 5 says these are religious people because they have a form of godliness. An outward appearance of being religious But they deny the inherent power of true religion. And Timothy went on to say these are the weeds. Or Paul said these are the weeds. And they're going to grow up with the wheat. And they're not going to be pulled up until the end of the age. So you've just got to live with it. But you've also got to be discerning. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, verse 5, have nothing to do with these people. He's not talking about the unbeliever. He's talking about the religious teacher who at heart is an unbeliever and doing all that they can to disrupt and deny the power of God and the truth of Scripture. Paul talked a little bit about their technique and... Talked a little bit about the Old Testament examples in verse 8. But then he came down to verse 10. Where he said to Timothy, You, however, you know all about my teaching and my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance... The persecutions and sufferings that I endured. And what kind of things happened to me in those Galatian cities of Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. I want to remind you that there is a very wonderful clue in the scriptures that sometimes we miss in our English translations. It's the same phrase that starts out verse 10... ...which starts out verse 14, marking off two sections in the last half of this chapter. And it literally is translated, but as for you. Now if you have the NIV translation, verse 10 says, you however. But when you come down to verse 14, it translates it, but as for you. Those are the exact same phrases. And they help us in our study of the scripture to understand that Paul is trying to make a point... And then following it up with another powerful point. But as for you, Timothy, I want contrast. I don't want you to conform to this world. I don't want you to be like the weeds and the false teachers. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But as for you, Timothy, be different. Because the one who is in you, Timothy, should make you different from the others around you. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We are not of the world. We live in the world. And by the grace of God, Timothy, be different because of the one who is in you from those who are around you. Those are our marching orders as believers, not different in an odd sense. Isn't it sad when Christians are just plain weird? <laughs> You see someone on a TV and they're claiming to be a Christian and you just put down your head and go, oh no. I hope no one's watching this program. Or you have a friend or a neighbor who's, who's doing something and then they tell everyone that they're a Christian and you just realize that that's ruined the witness that you've been working so hard to establish. And of course, sometimes the foolish one is you. <laughs> sometimes it's me. But the point is, Christians are not to be weird. Weird. The old King James has the translation, translation we are a peculiar people. And some people thought well I just need to be weird and peculiar. No it means different. Wholly different. Attractable. Different. And so that's what Paul is trying to urge Timothy to do. So this is how he does it. Timothy first of all you know me. That's what it says in verse 10. You, however, you know me. You know that my teaching is different from the false teachers. And Paul shares his own experience. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, I think it is, Paul said, the things you have heard from me, the teaching you've heard from me among many witnesses, I want you to commit that teaching to others, reliable people who will teach others also Timothy you've heard my teaching you know it well in fact the greek word for know here means to follow closely or to know intimately Timothy is not some detached marginal student impartial he is all in He heard Paul's message, he embraced it, he absorbed it, now he's imitating it, and Paul is saying, you know me, and I want you to follow in my path, not in theirs. Notice Paul talks about his creed when he says, you know my teaching, and he's also talking about his conduct when he says, you know my way of life, my teaching, and my life. You closely follow them. You're intimately acquainted with them. And by the way, discipleship is never an individual sport because you cannot have discipleship without at least two people. Right? You cannot be a disciple on your own. You have to have someone to follow. You say, I'm following Jesus. Well, that sounds really good until Jesus says, I want you to have human mentors. Then what do you do? So we need to have people that we can follow their life and teaching. And if the teaching is backed up by the life, if the faith is genuine and the life is consistent, now you've got something. The false teachers had a form of godliness, but inside they denied its power. See the difference? Paul says, you know me. And you know my life is different. Not only was Paul's life, his purpose, his faith, his patience, his love... ...far different than the love of the people mentioned earlier in the chapter. His endurance. But he mentions his persecutions and his sufferings. And in particular he goes back to the sufferings he endured in the three Galatian cities... ...of Antioch. That's Antioch-Pisidia instead of Antioch-Syria. There's two of them in the scriptures... ...that are talked about quite often. Iconium and then Lystra. Now Timothy knew a lot about Lystra because that's his hometown. And Paul was stoned in Lystra. Dragged out of the city, left for dead and probably came back to life. It's debated as to whether he actually died or just came close to dying. But uh, many people think he actually died and God gave him his life back. And Timothy knew all about that. All the sufferings that I've endured. You know that. You know my life. These false teachers won't suffer for what they say they believe. By the way, that's a good test. If someone is willing to suffer for what they say they believe, they must really believe it. And Paul said, verse 11, The Lord, yet the Lord has rescued me out of them all. Now, I find that a fascinating phrase because where is Paul when he writes that phrase, the Lord has delivered me from all of these sufferings? In prison. How can you ever come away with a health and wealth philosophy, theology, that if I follow God, everything will go well for me? That is impossible. The scripture is against it. And Paul didn't grab some verses out of the Old Testament about prosperity, rip them out of context, and say, I'm always going to be conquering in Christ. Part of his conquering in Christ was having the right attitude in prison. (laughs) Someone put it this way, that the Lord rescues, ever rescues his people frequently from death and sometimes by means of death. The Lord delivered me out of them all, and now he has me in this prison for a purpose. Praise be his name. Now, lest you think that Paul's experience is exceptional, look at verse 12. Oh, by the way, Timothy, I want you to know that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The experience of Paul is the expectation of us all. In other words, if you desire to follow God in the midst of this evil world, get ready for a wild ride. The godly always arouse the antagonism of the worldly. And Paul is saying, young Timothy, I know you're timid. I know you're a bit hesitant. I know you don't jump into the battle and run into the fray. I I know you want to hold back, but Timothy, join me in my suffering. That's chapter one. Chapter two, endure hardness like a good soldier. Chapter three, understand this. My experience is your experience. Get ready to suffer. Now, I thought a little bit about this over my own life, and I have not suffered much for the faith. I don't know about you but but I haven't it's not that I want to and I wonder if sometimes I've avoided opportunities didn't say something when I should have said something because I didn't want to suffer for the faith but sometimes the Lord allows us to suffer to develop our faith and all of us have experienced that but as you live godly In an evil society, you will also suffer for Jesus. Oh, I've had some people laugh at me. I've never had anything thrown at me. I've never had anyone hit me because of my faith. But Paul says to Timothy, you're not excluded. You're not excluded. This is the expectation for us all. Think of it this way if you are in the world but not in Christ, you won't be persecuted. If you are in Christ but do your best not to be in the world, you won't be persecuted. The first is assimilation. You're part of the world. You're not in Christ. You're in the world. They're not going to persecute their own. The second is isolation. You're in Christ, but you don't want to be in the world. You're a hermit Christian. You like that idea about a monastery somewhere where no one around me will bother me. That's your idea of being a Christian. Let me be isolated. And God says, no, I pray not that you will take them out of the world, but that you will keep them from the world. Right. So if you are in the world and you are in Christ, you will suffer persecution. Union with Christ makes us a target. Remember John 15, if the world hates you, remember this. It hated me first. That's Jesus. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecute me, they'll also persecute you. That's the realism that Jesus wants us to grasp. In John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus gives us the dose of realism and the dose of optimism in the same verse. Modern theology wants us to be all optimistic. Have you ever listened to these preachers that will never say anything negative? Now, I think the preachers are often too negative. But there are some who try to always be positive and never announce the bad news. Oh, Jesus was a different type of preacher. He said, in the world, you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Or how about this one, Acts 14. Right after the first missionary journey... We must, through many hardships, enter the kingdom of God. The realism, a lot of hardships. The optimism, we're on our way to the kingdom. And so that's the attitude that Paul wants Timothy to have. You know me and my experience, and my experience is going to be your experience. So buck up, young Timothy. Times are going to get hard. How is he going to do it? Verse 14. But as for you, this is how you do it. You know the scriptures. Oh, I love this. This is a great book for a preacher to read and preach from because a preacher is talking to a preacher. Now you say, well, what's in it for me? The the principles are applied to all believers in so many ways. But if you have the responsibility to teach the word, this is thrilling stuff. And the bottom line is this, for all of us who suffer in an evil world, seeking to follow Christ, our hope and our help is the holy word of God. It's that simple. If you came here to listen, to to hear something new that you've never heard before, you're in the wrong place. Because what I'm going to tell you is this, your hope is the holy word of God. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned, this is verse 14, and what you have been convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy, from a childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. ...in Christ Jesus. Let's stop there for a moment. Paul says to Timothy, you know the Scriptures. And right off the bat he talks about Timothy's teachers. Continue in what you've learned... ...what you've been convinced of, verse 14... ...because you know the people who taught you. Now again, in context, you've got false teachers... ...in the early part of the chapter... Avoid them, have nothing to do with them. If you go back to chapter 2 and chapter 1 in the same epistle, they're all about endless uh, mythologies, genealogies, endless discussions. They love to talk and debate and never come to any conclusions. Ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And they'll get you twisted in these debates and you'll never grow. But Timothy, you know your teachers. Timothy's teachers well in context it's been Paul right you know my teaching you know my way of life chapter 2 what you heard from me I want you to replicate in your life and pass it on to others but notice it's not just that he goes on to say verse 15 you've known the scriptures from a child which means his teachers are Lois and Eunice mama and grandmama from chapter 1 And they taught him the Holy Scriptures. What does that refer to? Old Testament. That's all there was at that point in time when he was a child. They taught you the Holy Scriptures. Now don't miss this. Paul is his teacher. Paul is an apostle. And Paul's teaching is also Holy Scripture recorded in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 Uh, ...of the epistles, letters, books of the New Testament. And I love what Peter says. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says of Paul, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand... ...which the ignorant and unstable people distort... ...as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Peter calls Paul's letters scripture and he calls the Old Testament... The other scriptures. Don't miss that. So you've got the prophets in the Old Testament who gave to us the holy scriptures. By and large, it was the ministry and teaching of the prophets. And in the New Testament, the specially chosen of Christ called apostles who are writing the word or collecting the word and they give us the New Testament. And Timothy is to embrace both. And so are we, the teachers. But then notice the source. And this is verse 16. This is that famous verse. All Scripture is God-breathed. And that's a wonderful translation of it. All Scripture is God-breathed. Some translations say, all God-breathed Scripture is... You say, well, why is that different? Because it implies that maybe not all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture that is God-breathed is profitable. But the proper translation is all Scripture is God-breathed. What Scripture? Old and New Testament. We just talked about that. All God-breathed. Now, we often use the word inspiration, but technically that's not the right word. God did not inspire something that already existed. He spoke, he, he breathed out. It's expiration. He breathed out something into existence. And, and so I love this definition from, from John Stott. He says it is the original or the origination in God's mind of the word which was communicated by God's mouth through God's spirit. The Holy Spirit is often called the breath of God. God breathed out his word. Human beings recorded it. Prophets in the old, apostles in the new, and it's been inscripturated for us. This, my friend, is the word of God. And because it's the word of God, it is holy. Did you see that? Verse 15. Timothy, you've known the scriptures which are holy. Why are they holy? Because they're from God. You say, but human beings wrote the scriptures and they messed it up. No, 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 no. Peter says holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they recorded the scriptures. It's an amazing miracle. It's like the two natures of Christ. It can't Totally befathomed, Jesus is both man and God. It's like the Trinity, one God in three persons. You cannot explain it. And the Scriptures are holy, and the result is pure. It is the Word of God, even though it came through frail vessels. But God was overseeing the process, and the product is the holy Word of God. You can trust your Bibles, and don't let anyone tell you differently. By the way, if this book is not true, there is nothing in the universe that is. So do whatever you want. And that's what our world is saying. (laughs) It's saying this book is not true. Let's do whatever we want. Isn't it crazy out there? And it's getting worse. Which is exactly what Paul said in this portion of Scripture. That uh, deceivers, and I kind of skipped over it rather briefly, but these deceivers... Uh, are just going from bad to worse. But we have the scriptures, and they are breathed out from God. B.B. Warfield, a wonderful theologian of another generation who dedicated his life to studying this book. He was a brilliant mind. I think at Princeton, if I'm not mistaken. But Warfield wrote, What this verse affirms is that Scripture owes their origin or Scripture owes its origin to the activity of God, the Holy Spirit, and are in the highest and truest sense His creation, not man's. It is on this foundation of divine origin that we have these high-sounding attributes given to the Holy Word of God. And since it is God's word, it is holy. And since it is God's word, it is profitable. The benefits of the word of God. It's profitable precisely because it is inspired of God. It is the product and work of God. And it's profitable for what? Well, look back to verse 15. To make you wise to salvation. The Old Testament scriptures can make you wise to salvation but the goal here is not what was so common in the jewish mind of the day of keeping the law and gaining righteousness this makes us wise unto salvation through faith in christ jesus the old testament talked of christ here's the verse that proves it the old testament looked ahead to the coming of christ it was foreshadowing the messiah And also the New Testament explains him. The Old Testament foreshadows him. The uh, the New Testament explains him. And the book is all about Christ. And this book can make you knowledgeable. It can open up your eyes about salvation. There's a lot of things hard to understand in this book. But one thing is abundantly clear. The way for salvation... Is by trusting the Savior. By faith. We embrace. The false teachers used the Old Testament. In allegorical ways. That ripped apart. Uh, their wonderful fabric of truth and continuity. The Old Testament and false teachers today abuse the Scriptures and make them say anything they want them to say. But Christ is the unifying point of Old and New Testament. And faith in Christ brings you back to the focal point. That salvation comes through Him and Him alone. The Bible is essentially a handbook of salvation. And it's overarching purpose is not to teach science. But to teach salvation. The facts about salvation. Much about science can be learned as man examines the world that God has created. And no true science is ever going to contradict the scripture. But no one can find out about salvation apart from this book. It has to be revealed from heaven and it is and so the Bible is profitable now look at verse 16 there's some benefits to the scripture that I want you to be aware of number one and I want you to activate in your own life number two and basically the benefits fall into two categories it's the idea of concept and conduct or creed and conduct So the the scripture is profitable. It's useful, verse 16 says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Four different things. But they actually fit into two categories. So it's the idea of concept or creed. That's teaching and rebuking. That's instructing and telling someone. This is right. No, that is wrong. That's what the scriptures do. And again, this flies into the face of our society. Right and wrong. The scriptures give us a creed. But then secondly, it affects our conduct. Correcting bad behavior and training us in righteousness, which is right behavior. So that's what the scriptures do. They give you something to believe and they tell you how to live and how to gain the power from God Almighty himself. Now when as a believer you are believing the creed of Scripture and allowing your conduct to follow the path of Scripture, verse 17 is then for you. You are now equipped to do whatever God wants you to do. The man of God there might refer to someone who is preaching but it's also used in generic ways. The servant of God. And that can refer to anyone. If you want to serve God, this book will equip you to do all that you need to do. Isn't that amazing? And it's because it's a holy book. It's holy because it came from God. And it can revolutionize your life. That's why you spend time in it every day, don't you? That's why you committed to memory all of the time. That's why you can't get enough of it. Feel rebuked yet? I do. Man, if this is true, then why am I not pouring over this book? Make this your food. Job said, I esteem the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Prove it. Feed on this book. And your life will be transformed. And you'll be able to stand up against the false teachers. The griefs of this world are counteracted by the gift of a sovereign God. His mind and his spirit. So remember that your suffering is inevitable. But the scriptures are profitable. Powerful, divine. And we can be more than conquerors in the midst of our suffering through this wonderful book. Though the cover is worn and the pages are torn, and though places bear traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is this book, worn and old, that can shatter. And scatter my fears. Every time I look in this precious old book, many pleasures and treasures I find, many promises of love from the Father above. And I forgot the rest. <laughs> but you get the picture. This old book is my guide, it's a friend by my side, it will lighten and brighten my way and each promise I find soothes and gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it today. Heavenly Father, help us to embrace your word by reading it, believing it, living it.